Okay, welcome everyone to the Ex Umbras podcast. Uh, Scholar McClary, and with me is Schoolman Fawcett, and uh, we are teachers at Chesterton Academy of Saint Isidore Learning Center, the world's only online Chesterton Academy. And this podcast is classical Catholic education in podcast form. Uh, so you want to know what we teach at the online Chesterton Academy? Well, uh, just keep listening, and you'll get a sample of it. But if you've been listening to our last episode or two, you'll know we're talking about Machiavelli, and that yeah. maybe will scandalize you, because we're supposed to be a classical Catholic school, oh. and yet, and I, I warn my students of this, but when we get oh, to this, okay. yeah. is that uh, this book was put on the Index of Prohibited Books by oh, the right. church, Yeah, and you said last week that it was, a, or last episode, yesterday in our time, that it was a great read. What a oh, scandalous yes, thing of you to have said. Yeah. How, how do you justify it that we're reading this, this book that was banned by the church at one point uh, in, a, in a Catholic school, an allegedly cl- classical school? What's the rationale for that, would you say? Oh, very good question, actually. I, there's a few things we've noted. But first of all would be we want to know how people think. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and Machiavelli has such an enormous influence that we kind of want to know how we think, perhaps, uh, or what it, what it is that we've borrowed from him. Uh. And, um, yeah, I think, I think that, would be, that would be part of it. Uh, second of all, I'd say we also want to have, a, uh, I guess, an, uh, an appreciation for, well, I guess it deepens our appreciation of what we don't stand for. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it would be similar to reading um, the Communist Manifesto or, or perhaps even Nietzsche. I mean, we can engage in those texts, but that doesn't mean we're actually going to be ensnared necessarily by them. And in fact, uh, we might be better attuned once we, instead of hearing snippets or, or asides as to what you know these thinkers mm-hmm. uh, actually espouse, as opposed to engaging the primary text uh, itself. So I think that is another uh, feature of classical education that's, I think, very attractive, is we're not just looking at... Uh, Wikipedia or, or mm-hmm. you know, some AI-generated response as to what a thinker is all about. And instead, mm-hmm. we're actually engaging mm-hmm. in their texts and, and, and looking at what the, the arguments they've constructed and then being able to further evaluate that within the, the canvas of Western civilization, and in particular here last time. Well, we've been talking a lot about Plato as well as we've been going. So I think a very helpful mm-hmm. point of contrast between the Old Republic and the mm-hmm. new, but I know you probably have some other reasons. No, why. I think that's pretty uh, adequate. Um, I mean, I will say, uh, you know, from what I've heard, the index was a, you know, it was kind of nominal. You, you just you got permission before you had to, you got to read. Uh, oh, right. You know, you just had to. It was a bit of a formality, but it did show that this was seen as being dangerous. And maybe that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if you sort of had to get permission before you could read, uh, well, let's say Machiavelli, because. Uh, you know, you know, you had to demonstrate that you were in the context of a classical school, or that you had a priest supervising you, or something like that, to make sure you didn't go astray in reading Machiavelli. Right, I think, right. I, think uh, I think I quoted this to you before, but Evelyn Waugh said that the uh, the best thing about the index of prohibited books was it gave him an excuse not to read Sartre. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, but in any event, the, the the index has been abandoned, so we're all good. We're in the clear, I think, and so are you if you're listening. Uh, but I do really appreciate what you said about uh, how understanding what we in the modern world have taken from these people. You know, we want to know about the context that we're in. And that is really a job of education. Remember, as we've discussed, classical education is based on the trivium. You start with logic, or you start with grammar, and then you move into the logic dialectic. It was a disputatio, right? The disputation form, which is preserved in uh, Thomas Aquinas, right? In the Summa, you know, the question-answer format. That's how their classes worked, right? It was, and he's willing to engage with 
uh, Aristotle, uh, with the Muslims, right, uh, with uh, Jewish rabbis and so forth. So perhaps we can engage with this uh, errant Catholic Machiavelli, which we'll right. talk about today. Yes. Uh, but it is true. He did invent much of the of modern um, of modern thought. Uh, you know, I am currently doing a doctorate in educational leadership, so I've had to read about leadership and leadership theories and oh, servant leadership and authentic leadership and distributed leadership. And it's just very interesting how even the ones that sort of strive to be ethical, yeah. Machiavelli is lingering in the background. Oh, right? Because it's always okay. supposed to be scientific. This is what will work. To make you the most effective, be be an ethical leader, be a servant leader, uh, be an authentic leader, because that's most effective, <laughs> right? right? Not because that's the ultimately uh, virtuous form. Now there is actually a book out there by a Catholic called Virtuous Leadership that does kind of try to restore that. Um, the, the Aristotelian idea of magnanimity, uh, the Platonic Ooh, yeah. Aristotelian. Okay. So we need to we can have Augustinian humility and Aristotelian magnanimity. That's what makes a leader actually. Yeah. So there are attempts by Catholics to sort of actually develop a truly I guess, non-post-Machiavellian leadership theory. But it's really pervasive in, in leadership literature, I think, in the corporate world, uh, in the business world. Um, I mean, you, I'm sure you've come across uh, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, oh, right. and his course. Yeah. Uh, Marshall McLuhan called him America's Machiavelli. Oh, he called okay. him, like, Machiavelli with a smile, I think he called him. Uh, and, you know, you, you just go to the chapters or the Barnes & Noble or whatever, you'll see books that sometimes overtly invoke Machiavelli. I've seen Machiavelli for business leaders. I've seen Machiavelli for women, paradoxically. Oh, okay. yeah. How women can get ahead by following Machiavelli's sure. advice. But, you know, again, in, it's also uh, latent, I think, in books like uh, 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene or uh, there's a book called The Game about how to pick up women and, and the pickup artists, right? Which oh, okay. I think I, I will as we'll discuss, I think actually uh, there's precedent for that in Machiavelli's life okay. as well, right? Sure. Um, so... Yeah, if you want to know about this world we're in and, and the, the will to power and how it manifests, yeah, I think mm -hmm. you, you have no choice but to sort of take Machiavelli by the, by the horns, a metaphor that is uh, apt because, of course, uh, he, <laughs> he was nicknamed Old Nick. He was seen as kind of a demonic figure, I right. think correctly. People yeah. have tried to kind of rehabilitate him, but I think Leo Strauss was right. He's a teacher of evil, uh, and I think you explained that really well uh, in our last uh, podcast. Uh, I know Jacques Maritain... He says that there's like kind of two Machiavellianisms. He said okay. initially Machiavellianism could, was seen as a tool that Christian leaders could use for virtuous ends. Right. Right. And then the second Machiavellianism is it's a tool for personal power. And he says yeah. basically what he, what he concludes is you kind of can't you can you could start with the first one, but it's eventually going to become the second one. You can't right. you can't play yeah. with fire like that. Even if yes. perhaps that's what Machiavelli himself wanted, we're not you know maybe we'll discuss that. Okay. But he says yeah. he's a you know in, in, the initial reception of Machiavelli may have been this is just a tool we can use for better and nobler goals. We have to just be a little mm. corrupt in the service of something nobler. Yeah. And of course now, but now there's this perception of Machiavellianism that it's pure amoral calculation. And and Maritain says. Whether or not Machiavelli intended that, you need to end up there if you're going to be mm. kind of consistent with the principles yes. there. Yeah. So. Well, I appreciate that uh, insight because, yeah, if you want to think of it as pure uh, amoral calculation, well, that's all effectual truth is about, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's that calculus of how we can manipulate. Uh, and, and if we can look at data and so on and numbers, well, that's amoral. Mm. Well, maybe manipulating people as well. That, that might be immoral too. It, I mean, that's a, that's a road that leads down, right? Sure, so. yeah. And I mean, isn't that what 
advertisers do. I mean, that's what social media does, collecting data on everybody. And, you know, political oh. campaigns now do all this polling to see how, you know, what lines will resonate with people. And that's essentially, is that all that different qualitatively from doing uh, experiments in a lab on, you know, which chemical reaction will produce right. this pharmaceutical drug? I mean, yeah. it really... And maybe both of those are, are intended virtuously, but in yeah. practice, they're both still treating uh, treating it as just an amoral science, right? So, uh, as mentioned right before, Machiavelli is working within a pre-established genre, sort of, right? There were already uh, books called Mirrors for Princes when he wrote The Prince. Uh, one of them was written by St. Thomas Aquinas, De Regno. Um, but of course, as he says, he's doing something new, right, right. with it. Yes. Uh, and, and the clue is right in the first chapter, because... Uh, how many how many kinds of states does Aristotle divide uh, the constitutions into? We have three, do we not, uh, Aristotle? Well, there's three. Well, there's six. Oh, right? Six. Ultimately, when he's, he's building off Plato here, right? Of course, because you know Plato talks about the different kinds of regimes and how they can kind of slouch into oh, uh, okay, being right. worse, right? Yes, but like yeah. you know, for Aristotle, you have you know democracy, right, versus like a uh, sort of anarchy, or you have tyranny versus monarchy, right? Yeah. And you have like a you know, a terrible uh, tyr- uh, tyranny of a you know we have aristocracy, and then uh, what's the term he uses exactly? It's um, it's like not cacistocracy, but it's something similar to that. Like a when you have a power, an oligarchy. There we go, an oligarchy, right? right yeah. So you know you can have a rule by the one, and that can be good or bad. You have a rule by many, and that can be good or bad, like an aristocracy or uh, you know an oligarchy. Yeah. And you can have a rule by the many, by everybody in a sense, and that can either be mob rule or it can be democracy. Right. So there's a moral judgment involved here. First chapter of the prince, he says there's two kinds of, munis- of principalities, basically, okay, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, there's like, they're acquired and they're inherited. And there's no moral judgment there, right? He's just like, yeah. it's very matter of, fa- matter of fact, right? right? Like, it's just factual. Yeah. No judgment involved about which, you know, you'd want to live in or anything, right? So it, when you start reading the prince, not nowadays, you're like, well, that's kind of a dry, scholastic way to open your book. Like, there are two forms of states in the world, and I'm going to talk about one of them. Okay, yeah, but that yeah. is actually revolutionary, what he's doing. That, that is an mm. intention. Before he gets into kind of his uh, veiled, you know, passive-aggressive references to Plato and all that, that's already an implicit shot at the political tradition of saying that some regimes are morally better than others. Here he's just saying, there just happen to be two, and they operate differently, and here's how you can work within them. Yeah. Right away, he's working as a kind of an amoral, political... Uh, scientist, right? I, but of course, what he's doing in, the, in that is inventing a new genre, and as we discussed, he's writing his own Bible. Right? Yeah, uh, right. you, you showed that I think very well. You know, he's got his Ten Commandments. He's got his new Messiah figure in mm-hmm. Caesarea Borgia. Yeah, uh, and as I, I mentioned, uh, I'll just elaborate on this quickly. You know, Caesarea Borgia, his failure is ultimately uh, that he's betrayed by the Pope, right? right. Julius yeah. II, and he makes a point of calling him Saint Peter. Okay. Right in that in that chapter, and of course he you know he's Saint Peter in the sense that he's the you know vicar of yeah. he's the heir of Peter and the vicar of Christ, but he's also Saint Peter in that he is the in that he is also betraying the Messiah. Right. So there's a there's a there's a very strong motif there of this being a, a new Bible, and I would suggest that he was successful actually in that. And, and the reason I mention that is because, like I said, there's a whole lot of books that are kind of commentaries on it indirectly. Uh, I'll give one example. 48 Laws of Power. Very popular book in prison, apparently. Popular okay. book among business uh, people. Uh, it's essentially a modernization of Machiavelli. Now, in uh, chapter 20 of The Prince, Machiavelli says, uh, fortresses are not that helpful. You don't really need fortresses. They're, like, more trouble than they're worth. That's absurd. <laughs> like, that, 
I think most military historians would say Machiavelli was just wrong there. Yeah. Now, Robert Greene, in his book, allegorizes this. I think it's his 16th law, where he says, well, what, you, what he means is you shouldn't build, like, social fortresses, right? You shouldn't be, if you want to be powerful in this world, you can't be closed off and only be around your inner circle, right? You need to be out there among the people, hearing what they're doing and building connections and so you can manipulate them. Well, to me, that sounds for all the world like what the church fathers do with the Bible. When they come across a, like, right. you know, a difficult passage, right? It's, well, part of this is an allegory, right? This can't be literally true, so it must be. It has a kind of moral meaning for us. Okay. Uh, yeah. th- that's, that's what I see going on with Machiavelli. And, and, you know, when you see him quoted, that's often what's going on. Or he's being paraphrased, right? Is that he's become this Bible where even his literally bad advice gets kind of uh, reinterpreted. Or there's a hermeneutic <laughs> right. yeah. in which it can be reapplied in a new and true way. Why, why would you have to do this for him? Why can't you just say he was a Renaissance figure who was outdated and wrong? Well, because he's kind of assumed a scriptural status, I think. Mm, in to the canon. Right? He's yeah. in, in our canon, for sure. So, Now, then the question that I have for you is, right. is Machiavelli ultimately then an anti-Christian? Oh, wow. That's a great question. When all said and done, would you say he's writing his own Bible? He's suggesting we need a different morality right than the uh, Christian morality. Yep. Uh, so does, does that mean he's anti-Christian? Uh, what I would say is that he is planting the seeds uh, which will undo uh, Christendom. Uh, so he's, he's infusing within our thought world or w- within our behavior, within our, our institutions, here in particular with the prince, a formula which very much, yes, is undermining uh, the foundation that has been built up on charity mm-hmm. uh, and in hope, faith, and love. And, and this is, um, in that sense, absolutely. Uh, it is anti-Christian. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, well, it's interesting that you mentioned he's undermining Christendom. Do you think he wants to undermine the Christian faith? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's problematic to him, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, religion is it going to be religion or realism, right? We asked that question at yes, the time. Sure. So, so if you're going to fully embrace the faith, I mean, there's an absolute danger you're going to become a peaceable ruler. Now, Augustine mm-hmm. does point out in City of God, like um, th- there are certain things that a Christian ruler nonetheless needs to do, although the state can uh, or having power can be a means of exerting. Growing in virtue even further because you have to place limits on yourself that a non-Christian wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily do or be inclined to do so. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, he is. Um, okay. He is uh, reworking uh, a trajectory uh, that that he sees the the successful ruler going. Mm-hmm. Now, now, how much? I mean, it's a separate question: is how much we can extend this beyond specifically uh, a prince. So if you're talking about allegorizing it to um, uh, social networking mm-hmm. or, or, you know, life in a corporate world, uh, th- that, that's a different take, I think, that's in their step beyond what Machiavelli is saying. But he's, he, as far as if we're going to be, uh, I would say, generous to him, mm-hmm. uh, right, he, he's really just speaking about the, the life of a prince. But and, is that reflected in his other work, do you? Uh, no, what do you mean by that? Well, so for example, he, he's yep. also a dramatist, right? Yep. He writes the play The Mandrake, oh, yeah. right? which is about a guy, I mean, yep. a lot of stuff happens, but sure. the guy who wants to woo the wife of his rival, so he pretends to be a physician and tells the guy, uh, you know, that you'll increase her um, fecundity, I think, or yep. if she takes mandrakes, but if she takes mandrakes, 
the first man she sleeps with will die. So it can't be you. But you know what? He's a, he's a virtuous doctor. He's like, I'm willing to take one for the team, and, and I'll sleep with your wife after she has the mandrakes, right? And then, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, by the end of the play, he has successfully maneuvered his way into this woman. You know, in between her and her husband. That doesn't seem overtly political. Now, maybe allegorically oh, it's political. Sorry, but, that's, sorry. but that seems like yeah. it's about, you know, your personal private life, right? That you're applying uh, Machiavellian principles to getting ahead in the, um, in the romantic world or something like that, right? Oh, sure. The social world. Yeah. Now, what's the point there, though? Uh, like in, in the Mandrake, right? So there, everyone gets what they want, Right. Okay. So, so the husband okay, he, he he gets a, um, a progeny, an offspring. Uh, the woman has a lover, and then the man, the the, the mm-hmm. doctor. Right. I also choose what he wants. So everyone gets what they want mm-hmm. by breaking the rules, though. By so by setting them aside. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Okay. So we're talking about yeah. This this is um, follows suit uh, of what he's saying in, in the principle. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you want to broaden in that sense, looking mm-hmm. beyond uh, the principle. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and, he, and he has his priest character reason that uh, yeah. well, Lot, right? Lot, Lot's daughters uh, seduced him. Uh, yeah. but they had good intentions, right? right? And, what, and yeah. the, the, me- the moral message for us is that it's your the intention is what makes the difference, right? So you can do things that seem corrupt. He's, he's essentially a, 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 not a almost almost a consequential, not even a consequentialist. Like he he just thinks the intention. Right is what you know in, in the Catholic moral yeah. tradition. Right, there's a object, circumstance, and intention are what make right. uh, you know yes. a moral act. He seems to think it's or at least this this priest quotes scripture, right? Quotes yeah. Lot, um, and kind of changes the story a little bit. He says they thought that there was nobody else, and you know yeah. Yeah. So they had no other choice but to sleep right. with their father. Right, so if incest was okay and deceit was okay for a good cause, you know maybe this is all for a, you know okay for a good cause too. And for a good outcome, because like you said, everyone ends up happy at the end of it. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, it's on, he, on the surface at least. On the yes. surface, it seems. Yeah. yeah, you wonder how long that's sustainable for. But yeah. uh, so then, what does that mean? Okay, so is that is the implication there that he's revised Christian faith, or that Christian faith is just a tool, or what do you? He, he's relativizing it. So it might be a, a facade. I mean, it's appearance that's important. It's something that you have on the outside. It helps. It informs societal expectations and so on. But at the end of the day, it comes second place, mm. uh, or third or fourth, or whatever you want. But it's 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 not love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, mm. and all your might. Uh, this is um, so he's injecting uh, into that gospel message. This this poison pill that mm-hmm. is is going to unravel the priority of Christ mm-hmm. uh, and and um, our allegiance uh, to him. So, so last episode you said that uh, you you reject the theory that the prince is a poison pill for um, the Medici's. Are you suggesting it's a poison pill for Christianity, maybe or Christendom? Uh, yeah, I mean that's a broader <laughs> question, but I would say if you're going to appropriate it, so if you're going to ingest it. Uh, the, that's going to be the result. That's mm-hmm. the natural result. Like, like, like Mary Tan says, uncritically. So if you're going to embrace his uh, eleven commandments, <laughs> right, right. Uh, then yeah, that, yeah, this is that's uh, absolutely going to be the outcome. Okay, yeah, yeah. So very plausible, I think. I, I basically agree with that. Uh, I am going to put on the air this theory that I've floated with you before, yes. which is I think I'm, I'm going to suggest based on Machiavelli's. Um, if you take his writing at somewhat face value, which which is probably naive, I'll admit, but I'm going to do that. I'm going to death of the author here a little bit. Well, no, not exactly, because I'm going to look at his own biography. I'm going to suggest Machiavelli 
was uh, a heretic. Uh, he was a, a Manichaean, I think. Um, now, you're the Augustinian expert here. Well, <laughs> tell, tell the folks at home what Manichaeanism is. I was going to well, say it was, but it's still it's still around, I think, so uh, don't tell us what it is. I mean, it's just a form of Gnosticism. So Gnostics are very elastic. It's an elastic term. It's an umbrella term mm-hmm. uh, to signify. There's several aspects to them, but one is that they're um, syncretists. So they're going to take aspects of different religions and put them together. Mm-hmm. So in this case with the Manichees, you're going to take some elements of Zoroastrianism. You're going to take a little bit uh, from Eastern religions as well, what we now call, uh, say, Buddhism or Hinduism. Uh, then you're going to dabble in a little bit in uh, the Bible, so Judaism and, mm-hmm. and New Testament. And um, lo and behold, uh, you, you draw in this together. So they're not monotheistic. No. So that's one thing. Uh, they're dualistic. And, and most Gnostics are going to go down that road. Uh, Manichees in particular are, are uh, dualists like um, Zoroastrians. Mm. And th- they're going to go um, down that road of saying there's a good God. And then there's a bad god. Uh-huh. Uh, and the, the, the evil god is uh, the god of the Old Testament in, in Manichaeism and in most Gnostics. Whereas the good god, god of the New uh, Testament, uh, god of light. And this, uh, well, earthen suit that we're wearing uh, is corrupt mm-hmm. uh, and evil. And uh, as a result, well, there's two, there's two different ways you can look at that. But you need to purify your, your body in order, or, or sorry, the, your spirit, your soul. That's the good ba- a bit of you which needs to um, achieve enlightenment, hence the word gnosis, where we mm. get knowledge from. And through that enlightenment, then we can uh, move towards being pneumatic. Um, mm-hmm. That's Valentine, at least, but Valentinus. So it would be, become an elite um, uh, spiritual people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the, I mean, the, the idea, though, that this world is evil usually leads to two radically different. Uh, movement. So one is to completely indulge yes. in the passions. And why? Because, well, the body's evil, so you can do whatever you want with it. Sure. Uh, the other one is to have extreme asceticism. So renouncing marriage, um, mm-hmm. all, all sorts of uh, fasting and so on, um, to the point where, cause why? Because the body is evil. Uh, and mm-hmm. you're trying to break it down and release the spirit that needs to, that's yearning to get out. Sure. Yeah. So with with Manichae, yeah, there's um, th- th- they're following in that that line of thought, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. uh, it's following the uh, the prophet Manny. That's that's who they're named for. Manny, yeah, he's a Persian mm-hmm. prophet. Yeah, that's right from uh, second century. Now let's just uh, you, this is implicit in what you've said, but let's just uh, tease it out. So what did the bad god do, and what did the good god do? What did they what did they respectively create? Uh, well, the bad god is responsible for the material world, mm-hmm. uh, right? So that that's that's uh, his domain uh whereas the good god is for the spiritual world so Absolutely. so uh the spirit the soul and and, and so on so the, right. they're at work this war is at uh yep, transpiring absolutely. the dualism that you mentioned yes yeah, yeah. Uh, which is you know how some uh i guess people who think they're christians kind of think about you know you sometimes see images of like god you know jesus and the devil arm wrestling or something over the world. I mean, that's essentially a Manichaean yeah. image, right? Uh, you know? Absolutely. Uh, at, at least in the way, you know, it's kind of presented, right? Or, you know, movies that sort of pose it as that way, like God and the devil are at war. I yeah. mean, in, in one sense, that's true, but John Milton understood that better than, uh, than some people do in, in their versions but uh, of that account. But I'm going to suggest that I, I don't think he necessarily consciously was a Manichaean. Like, he's, like he, you know dug this up and read about it. Although he was very well read, so it's possible. It's possible. I'm sure Man, uh, Machiavelli you know, had read his Augustine, and in some ways you could say he's, <laughs> there's elements of Augustine in some of his thought, uh, but I think he's de facto a Manichaean. 
And I'm inspired by a, a bull from, the, I think it's the year 1300 or 1301, Unum Sanctum. Controversial bull, we won't get into it, but you know it has to do with the Pope's relationship to the civil state. Uh, and the Pope condemns the idea that the church has nothing to do with the civil state as a kind of Manichaeanism. It's a way of saying, mm-hmm. well, you know, there's Christianity, and that's good for the church, but then, you know, for the secular world, it's got its own morality. He's, that's oh, okay. de facto well, a kind I of Manichaeism. where you're going with this. Okay. Sure, right. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure our astute listeners have as well. But let me, uh, let me, let me, po- well, I'll, 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 give, I'll, I'll give away the game here, and then I'll, I'll try to defend it. Okay. I think Manich- uh, Machiavelli, it's interesting how similar their names are, too, <laughs> yeah. um, thinks that in this world you kind of can't help but sin if you want to get stuff done. But I would say he still seems to think it's sin, and that there's another set of morality that applies to the other world. Uh, and so you've got to, uh, as a good you know, strategist, you've got to plan for that other world, you've got to make arrangements for it. But in this world, you, you need to sin. And, you, and, and actually, as you've mentioned, as a Manichaean, you're kind of free to do what you want, because hey, you know, everything is sin anyways, and everything is evil. So you can be yeah. as profligate as you like. Um, and I'll just defend it. I'll throw out my arguments for this, and you can kind of uh, respond okay. how you like. All right. um, now, I will say, first of all, um, I, I mentioned this uh, in our last episode. Uh, Peter Kraft says this, and I agree with him. There is something to Machiavelli that I think does put him ahead of Plato and Aristotle. I think he is more aware of human depravity than they were. Right? Okay. Plato, I, I understand you can debate a little bit what he meant here, but he does seem to say sin is ignorance, and if, if, if people were just better educated, uh, you know, they basically wouldn't do what was wrong because they know it wasn't wrong. It's possible he meant something a little more nuanced by that than it sounds. Right. But it certainly sounds as though he's just, well, it sounds literally Gnostic, right? If you have this knowledge, it'll protect you from sin. Uh, Machiavelli, you know, the post-Augustinian Catholic that he is, says, uh, no, in chapter 17, he's got, it's the chapter about, is it better to be feared than loved? Oh, he right. says, right, um, it is to be asserted in general of men that they are ungrateful, fickle, false, cowardly, covetous, and as long as you succeed, they are yours entirely. They'll offer you your blood, property, life, and children. But uh, they turn against you, right, when things change. Now, is he wrong? He's just, in general, we can say that about human beings. I'm going to suggest he's not. I'm going to suggest that that's pretty accurate, actually, as far as that goes. And, uh, and, and that, again, that's not so far from what St. Paul says, right? <laughs> All of sin, you know, every man's a liar, right? Uh, no, no, not one is, is exempt from this, right? So... I think he then infers from that, given that most people are evil, you have to be evil of, of necessity, because that's kind of the dialectic, mm-hmm. right? He's got virtue, and it has to deal with, like, fortuna and necessitas, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, of necessity, you have to sin. And then in chapter 8, he has this line. It's, it sounds a little cheeky, but he says, you know, sometimes you have to be evil, um, and you can use evil well, uh, if of evil it is possible to speak well. Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds a little sneaky, like, you know, he's kind of admitting, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of saying something nice about evil. Yeah. But he still calls it evil, yes. right? He's like, okay. it's, it's, a, it's a good, but it's also an evil, all right? right? Uh, and again, I, I will just acknowledge, it is possible <laughs> for all this, you can say, well, he's just saying this to cover his bases yes. and protect yes. from the church. Fair enough, I, I'm just going with the text for uh, now. All right. Uh, so let's, but let's roll with this, right? I also think Machiavelli is practical enough, right? He's a good enough observer of governments to uh-huh. know that the church must have a divine origin, all right. Okay. And he says this in chapter 11 concerning ecclesiastical principalities, right? Because he's already said in chapter 6, uh, only armed prophets ever succeed, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he gives a bunch of examples. He mentions Moses, which is, you know, it was Moses armed. I guess he had his staff. Um, it's possible that Moses is a euphemism for Muhammad, yeah. right? Yeah. But saying in general, and of course he observed this, right, uh, with Savonarola, right? That like yeah. he tried to be a leader and he failed, right? Uh, you have to be armed. Unarmed prophets never succeed. Only the armed prophets succeed, right? But then he admits in chapter 11 that doesn't really apply to the Catholic Church, right? Mm. They, they, these princes, you know, bishops, you know, whatnot, they alone have states and do not defend them. They have subjects and do not rule them. The states, although unguarded, are not taken from them. And the subjects, although not ruled, do not care and do not have the desire or nor ability to alienate themselves. And then he says, uh, they are upheld by powers to which the human mind cannot reach. And so I shall speak no more of them. Because being exalted and maintained by God, it would be the act of a presumptuous and rash man to discuss them. Now, he, he does go on and say, but when you look at how they use politics, here's what they do, and you know this and the other thing. So fair enough. But again, I think Machiavelli would be able to observe, sort of the same way Hilaire Belloc later would, right? That like, if the church were <laughs> purely human, it would have fallen apart, right? Okay, sure. It wouldn't have been effective. So as, yeah. as a pragmatist, I think he recognizes probably the Catholic Church is has a divine origin and we should listen to it when it comes to divine matters and spiritual okay. matters. Oh, okay. Which does mean that, sure, not when it comes to temporal matters. They don't know what they're talking about there. But for eternal matters, they would be plausible. So that would mean that their, you know, their morality is true. If you break that morality, you will go to hell. So you'd better recognize that and make accommodations for that. So it's interesting because Machiavelli did belong to a flagellant community. Uh, his father had two. Uh, it was called the Company of Piety. Uh, and he actually wrote an exhortation to penitence for them. Uh, and I'll quote from it uh, a couple of passages here, because I think it, this, is, this is my point here. I think he's recognizing or he's asserting, basically, we all sin. We can't help but sin. So isn't it great that God has provided some recompense for this, right? Some way out. He says, okay. it was known to the most high God how easy it was for man to rush into sin. He saw that if he had to endure the harshness of vengeance, it was impossible that any man should be saved. Uh, he could not, with a more merciful remedy, provide against human frailty than by admonishing the human race that not sin, but persistence in sin could make him unforgiving. And therefore he opened to men the way of penitence, so that having lost the other way, they could rise to it by heaven, uh, rise by it to heaven. And then jumping to the very end, the last paragraph, his examples are, uh, he says, you know, we try to be good, but, but we keep failing because... He talks about the saints rolled around in, you know, briar patches and things like this, you know, thorn right, bushes. Right. And he says, but with what stones or what stones or what thorns shall we use to keep down our appetite for usury, for slander, for deceptions practiced against our neighbor? Right? <laughs> how, how can we keep that in check if not with yes. alms and honoring him by doing good to him? But we are deceived by lust, involved in transgressions and enmeshed by the snares of sin. And we fall into the power of the devil. Hence, to get out of it, we must resort to penitence. And cry out with David, have mercy upon me, O God. And with St. Peter, weep bitterly for all the misdeeds we have committed. Feel shame. It's interesting because those are his two examples are both leaders. Right? King David has, you know, the penitential psalms and St. Peter weeps, right, for yep. betraying Christ. Right. They're, they're both rulers in the civil and in the uh, religious realm. Right. And then ultimately, and we've, you know, I've talked with you about this and, you know, so forth, but he... At the, at the end of his life, there's a tradition that, you know, on his deathbed, an angel comes to him and offers him heaven and hell, and he sees in hell, he sees in heaven, it's all, like, miserable people who are poor <laughs> and on their knees, yeah. and in hell, it's all, like, the nobility and popes and philosophers, and he says, I'd rather go to hell. 
Okay. Uh, now, he, who knows if that story is true or not? That could be an urban myth. He hadn't read Dante, I guess. No, well, he probably. Well, see, but he must have, though. So that's that's why. I, I, that's also why I don't know if I believe that. Yes, again, yeah. I know that's why I don't know if I believe that story because okay. also he did receive the last rites. Um, right. And again, we've we've discussed this. I, from a worldly perspective, I don't know what he expected to get out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, what you're dying. You know, you're not. You're jockeying for what kind of power at this point? To me, yeah. that suggests he really did believe, I mean, that it was at least possible <laughs> that he was going to need this on his way out. Um, it's interesting. Have you ever seen his grave, by the way? I have not. It's, it's in a basilica, um, and there's a statue on it. It's a woman representing politics. Oh. And in one arm, she has, uh, like, a plate with his face on it, like his visage. And in the other hand, she's holding scales. Oh, okay. Like the scales of justice. And, I, and she represents, she's an allegorization for politics. Okay. Um, and it's in a it's in a basilica somewhere in, in Italy. So, so it's not Lady Justice, but Lady Politics. Apparently, from what I read, because okay. she's not blindfolded. Okay. Which again, maybe that's something. Something with politics, you can't be naive and uh, oh, you know, right? I don't know. Okay. I'm just speculating yeah, aloud yeah. because you asked me. But you know, Lady Justice is supposed to be completely impartial. Maybe right. maybe politics can't be. Maybe that's the message there. Yeah. So that is what I would maintain. I think that he. Um, oh, and, and again, like we you, we've mentioned, and we will mention, you know, he was. Uh, not faithful to his wife, uh, and not uh, not not somebody who, although he belonged to this company of flagellants, so for all I know, maybe he did both the Manichaean things. Maybe he did actually flog himself and also go out and uh, indulge himself. But uh, I think he was a. De- I get the impression of a de facto Manichaean from uh, Machiavelli's life and work and writing. Uh, what would your What would your thoughts on that be? Well, it's a very inter- uh, fascinating thesis. So, so it, it has a number of uh, facets to it that uh, I, I think are appealing. Uh, some hooks there that uh, can, can reel us in. I, um, I I would be hesitant in a, in a few areas, but well, I mean, we're free. I mean, obviously, no, it's free, right. I, I've, free, I've never free, I've never heard anybody free. else assert this, so maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. If, if anybody um, anybody listening wants to make this their thesis, though, go crazy. Yeah. Let me no, know because I. Sure. And if you do, uh, let's keep this in mind. So, okay, so first sure. of all, yeah, yeah, I, okay. going back to Plato, uh, for example, I mean, you're taking, looking at the high view Plato has of, of knowledge. So if we have certain knowledge, we're going to behave correctly or rightly. Mm-hmm. That's because of Plato's exalted vision of the ideal, right, the form of the good. Uh, once we know it, like, we're absolutely just going to follow it. But Plato does have, he's fairly sanguine when it comes to, well, I suppose, what we're capable of. But also... Um, he realizes, like in Book Nine, particularly putting out the you know the terrible things that 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 go on beneath the the the, mm. the human person, oh, sure, yeah. right? Mm. Um, and so here, well, I think uh, so. Plato might have that very optimistic view, but I mean, I'll go to Aristotle, right? Who, who mm. talks about uh, virtue? Uh, so there's the virtuous man who, who knows what's good, uh, chooses to do what is good, and then ultimately does follow through and, and, and do, do that, does the good, right? Or wants to do the good mm-hmm. and follows through. Uh, then you have the encratic, uh, acratic, and vicious uh, mm-hmm. people. So the encratic individual is one who knows what's good, doesn't really want to do what's good, but goes in and does the good anyhow. Mm-hmm. So that, that person is still continent, right, or encratic, uh, in that they're, they're vicious. Uh, sorry, that rather, in their virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and, as opposed, and then there's the acratic. This is someone who knows what's good, doesn't really want to do the good, <laughs> and goes ahead and does the wrong. All right, so that would be someone who's uh, incontinent or, mm-hmm. or acratic. 
Um, and then finally, there's the vicious person who knows mm. what's wrong. Uh, sorry, uh, thinks what's right is wrong, mm. wants to do the wrong, and goes in and does it. Mm. Uh, so, so there you have what I would say maybe the first self-help manual. Yeah, that's a fair part. Yeah, Nick, I, Nick, that's, I think that's not wrong. Ethics, yeah, rather. in some but, ways, yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh, and so uh, this understanding of um, the viciousness that humans are capable of, well, I think that that, mm-hmm. that, that certainly doesn't necessarily only be uh, a Manichaean view or a Gnostic per se, right? Sure. Uh, now, here, this is another, I, I think this may be the most problematic is that in Manichaeism, in, in other Gnostics, there's an obsession with um, salvation, mm-hmm. right, with the afterlife. Uh, so this world is here. There's certain uh, implications of viewing it as uh, evil and, and utterly corrupt. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the whole emphasis then is on getting out of here. Right. Uh, sure. Whereas the prince is taking us in a different direction altogether. That's true. It's, yeah. it's, it's not the trajectory is not... Uh, to the world beyond it's only here and now so that we have this um, bracketing off or just disregard uh, not no commentary uh, on what is to come Mm -hmm. uh, suggests that uh, it's not really a type of Gnosticism Uh, I would see it as almost a proleptic or form of uh, pragmatism uh, in, in say following uh, James or Dewey uh, where we're just looking at the instruments to achieve some ends uh, and theism and the transcendent just don't equate they don't they don't fit into the bandwidth in which we're analyzing so we're they're, they're not they're not going to be a part of our, our, our discussions or our, our equation uh, so I could see that the argument that following, say, Unum Sanctum or something like this, mm-hmm. the, the church is responsible for the uh, uh, divine affairs or, or spiritual affairs, and then uh, politics, well, we'll leave that, the secular affairs to us. Uh, there, I, again, I don't necessarily see that as a, a Gnostic mm-hmm. interpretation, Gnostic take. Uh, this could simply just be, well, as noted, a, a pragmatic, uh, or what later becomes pragmatism, uh, take on how do we operate within this world that we're working on. Now, you mentioned also a very uh, fascinating uh, facets of his life when it comes to, uh, you know, fla- being flagellant and uh, writing <laughs> sure, this, yeah. this, this manual for the men, as well as, uh, so there, uh, it, that's hard to, that, that's hard to... Uh, I mean, that could all be parts. for appearance. Sure. That's, that's yeah. fine. It's the last rights thing that gets me. Okay. So that that I don't know who he's trying to okay. impress. So there, that to me is simply him being true to his own colors. Mm-hmm. All right. So mm-hmm. let's, uh, all right, we've come to the end. Uh, let's try and hedge your bets. So okay. if there is some way out now um, mm-hmm. and there's no more uh, runway for me, well, basically this, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to look for an exit uh, mm-hmm. at this point. And so that would be a, na- a very Machiavellian thing to do. Mm. Right is uh, yeah, I suppose yeah. We can, yeah, we can just bypass uh, what we've done in uh, our life work uh, and, and just you know, on a, uh, spin on a dime, uh, pull a one eighty, and mm. uh, here let's go in a different direction now. Uh, so that, that's how I would. Um, it, yeah, that's, take sure. Yeah, yeah. Being true to himself. Oh, that's interesting because I, one thinks about on his deathbed. Then was he reassessing what it meant to be self-interested? Right. What does it gain the man? Right, if he sure. gains yeah. the whole world but loses his soul, right? That's still 
Um, I guess that'd be an interesting way where Machiavellianism and Christianity, imperfect contrition at least, end up meeting, right? Is yeah. once you once you look at it in the terms of eternity, well, what really is self-interest at that point? You know? Yeah, and I think it bears commenting on his anthropology, like like the quotation there that you read of um, penitence as a means of um, ca- um, rectifying the, the, the uh, wages of sin. Mm-hmm. Well, there, instead of Manichaean, it sounds very Pelagian. Uh, it, it, this sounds mm-hmm. like someone who's never read St. Paul, all <laughs> right, mm-hmm. uh, or at least certainly hasn't appropriated the idea of, well, we heard it at Mass this morning, right? Uh, those God has predestined, he has called. Those he has called, mm-hmm. uh, he has um, sanctified, right? Uh, uh, and then those, mm-hmm. uh, uh, those sorry. In those, oh, in those he, he sanctified, he also glorified? Glorified, glorified. Yeah, glorified. Yeah. So, so mm-hmm. the, the ending of that um, uh, uh, staircase is glorification, which is mm-hmm. nothing less than sharing in the image of God, uh, of His Son, uh, it, it being conformed to His image. So, mm-hmm. so the, the, this this is what it means to be holy: is to be whole with Christ, mm-hmm. uh, right part of His body, to be raised up uh, and to sit on thrones next to Him, as Ephesians says. Right. So exactly, and obviously in the Eastern tradition, you can use words like theosis and so on. Mm-hmm. Which uh, language that Machiavelli wouldn't obviously maybe be familiar with, but nonetheless, that's the whole point of mm-hmm. salvation: is that we can become perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, what I read him saying there, it, it sounds mm-hmm. more like um, this is uh, the onus is on you. Well, yeah, it sounds like he, yeah, it's it's a kind of Pelagianism mixed with like a bleak Jansenism almost where it's like you need to try as hard as you can but we're gonna fail um like we keep see we keep failing uh, by our own lust so isn't it great that God has this machine in place that can yeah. kind of wash our sins away since we since it's a given that we're not gonna be able to like there doesn't seem to be that sense of sanctifying grace per se like transforming us throughout our lives it's there's only uh you know the actual grace I guess of of the sacrament really is all that he kind of recognizes it's a really good point um again I would suggest that's a little Manichaean as well, um, there's there's not that interplay, or there's not sacramentality in that way of like throughout your life you're being transformed progressively and the world is being drawn up uh, right. into into Christ per se. But I, there is another question that I I don't know that I want to get into, but I'll just sure. put there that is Machiavelli. First of all, is this is it either or or is it both? Is the Prince Emmanuel for you to get as much power as possible, or is he saying? the just thing to do is as a prince is you need to keep social order and this is how you do it <laughs> right oh, right right like yeah. um because especially if you do see it as the second um there is something a little more post-christian about that um and again if you put, staple that onto manichaeanism that could explain a kind of attitude of you know for the other world you get get your soul clean so that you can get to the other world this world's inherently dirty but you have some duties here so you just have to get your, you know, you, you just have to sin. You have no choice but to sin. Uh, well, it's similar going back to our episode on international realism, right? There were some, uh, I mean, there were theologians actually who influenced realism where that's the attitude. Like, uh, uh, it's Niebuhr, right? Moral man and immoral society, right? Where, like, if you're going to be involved with politics, like, you just sort of have to bracket Christian faith to some extent. Unfortunately, God is gracious, right? Yeah. Um, 
you know, if a theologian like Niebuhr could say that, uh, I suppose a bad Catholic like Machiavelli might... I, I, again, I don't know that he necessarily thought it out this way. I'm just seeing it as a de facto disposition that he had, right, right. was yeah. that attitude. But yeah. And I think it's a point very well taken in that it's a misreading of the prince to say that Machiavelli has no concern for the people, right? No yeah. concern mm-hmm. for the common good. Yeah. He certainly does. And well, the last fact, chapter is like a prophecy of like a, a new, a second coming almost, right? For Italy, right? Someone who will come and deliver it, them, right? Yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. So, Italia. But uh, for for the, um, the, the prince has a duty in that respect for, for establishing a virtue amongst his people. Right, and there, there's a interplay that's going to happen between nobles and the people, and so on. And you know, the prince has got to manipulate either crowd uh, to suit his ends. But really, it's important for the people to to behave uh, in a, in a way that that will for the prince to inculcate that virtue within them. Uh-huh. But uh, again, why is that? Well, because they're unintelligent. <laughs> right? right, right. So, yes. so mm-hmm. they 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 are. More capable of manipulating them. If if they're not virtuous, well, good luck ruling them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you're going to be dealing with riots and, and revolt yeah, yeah. way more frequently uh, than than you want to. So this is again um, a very low view of of mm-hmm. the purposes of religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, is is a type of tool. Um, yes, go, sure. going back yeah. to say like uh, Thrasymachus uh, and his view mm-hmm. of justice, right? So this is just a, uh, a means, and, uh, and in and in a sense, oddly enough, ironically, almost a Plato, like the noble lie, almost right? like okay, in, yeah. you know, in, in, in again, an yeah. odd kind of horseshoe there where they kind of land up in the same place where you sort of need to feed myths to your people so they'll do what you need them to do to get the uh, yes, <laughs> yes, right, yeah. uh, curiously enough. So what, what I want to transition to now, looking yeah. at the time, is yes. um, that's that's my thesis of kind of where Machiavelli is coming from. Okay, now I want to challenge his premises. Is do you actually need to sin? Has he has he said um, that's supposedly what he was good at, right? Oh, was observing okay. this world, yeah. and he was a really good political analyst and realist. And you know, morally, maybe he was questionable, but at least he was really astute. Was he? Was he actually? How correct was he about how evil people are and how politics works? Um, well, first of all, what's your impression? What's your first thought on that? Do you think he it was basically correct in how he in his as a um, uh, as a describer, whatever the best noun there would be? Of the world how, and how politics works. Uh, I, I, I mean, again, it's hard to comment on the, the average peasant uh, in his day, but sure. I think he's vastly underestimating the intelligence of your average person. Yeah. Uh, humans uh, in, in social groups, sure. Uh, if I'm a day laborer, I might not have the same erudition uh, of a noble, and my I might use slang, and, and I might come across <laughs> as. Um, somewhat uh, dim that being said we know when we're being manipulated yeah. and and we might not have the means to stand up to a prince or or a group of nobles or whoever it is but we understand what a good ruler is mm-hmm. we might not be able to articulate it mm-hmm. uh, well but the, and, uh, and that's just on a human level i guess on a, just a daily interaction with other humans but built into our fabric i think is this capacity for love and being made in the image of God, we know if someone is being uh, holy or virtuous or not. Uh, I, I suppose we could be duped now and again, but uh, we still have that impression. So he's vastly underestimating uh, how we could be... We, um, it's true that we can be manipulated. 
Absolutely. But he's underestimating the extent by which we're impervious to uh, observing how that's happening. Well, is it? I mean, it's attributed to Lincoln, that quote. I, I, I don't, offhand, I don't know if Abraham Lincoln said it, but yep. you can fool all the people some of the time, and you can fool some people all the time, but you can never fool all the people all the time. Right. I yeah. would, I think that's true. There are some people who are all in, you know, there's some politicians who will have some people following them even if they get indicted. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. No matter what happens, they'll have followers. Yes. And there are yeah. times where, you know, maybe there's been some kind of national emergency, uh, state of exception, as Carl Schmidt would say, where right. there will be, be a moment where actually, yes, so the uh, leader can actually have a whole country eating out of his hand. Yeah. But I don't think that's sustainable. I, I think Lincoln or whoever quipped that was right. Right? You can't you can't fool everybody all the time under your. Yeah. Uh, thumb. And, and, and it goes back even thinking simplistic. Maybe this is thinking too simplistically. But like Aesop's Fables, um, uh, the travel with the cloak. Are you going to get him to take it off? by the wind blowing really hard, mm-hmm. or is it when the sun comes out and, and uh, kindness and gentleness that that will. Change that, the is this a Wilfred Laurier illusion? Right, Prime Minister. That was his, that was Laurier's approach. That's why he called his way the Sunny Ways approach to dealing with politics. Was he, okay. he quote that fable all the time? Oh, there you go. If okay. we ever do an episode on the Manitoba school question, that, that was the exact approach he took with Premier Greenway about okay. the Catholic school question. Oh, but, so yeah, that's a, no. I don't think it's not yeah, simplistic at all, actually, because yeah. uh, that, that one of our great prime ministers used it as an, that that particular fable as an approach to governing in this country. So okay, there the you great go. effect. But so, so again, going back to the anthropology. Are you, how you view humans? Uh, are we simply just brute animals with a really keen uh, facility for language, who who just will succumb to whoever is the strongest, or is there something more to us? And I, I think that's where Machiavelli um, goes astray. I think you're right. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna give I'm gonna build on that. Um, sure. So there's a, a book I recommend to my students. Um, by Peter Kraft, it's a dialogue between Socrates and Machiavelli in the afterlife. Um, it, it's if, if you you know if you like Kraft, you'll probably enjoy it. It's a little meandering because that's Kraft likes uh, that kind of wordplay. Uh, but he he has a section where uh, Socrates rebukes Machiavelli, uh, and he actually he's dealing with chapter three. Now chapter three okay. of uh, the Prince, he says, uh, if you're going to conquer an area, uh, you're going to have to kill some people, wipe yeah. them out thoroughly. Like don't just mildly injure them because. You know, yeah. they're mildly injured, they're going to get revenge, right? Wipe them out, yeah. then move in and settle there. Uh, and eventually the people will kind of come to love you. And everybody who you didn't hurt will, you know, eventually warm up to you, right? Yeah. Um, and he suggests that that is refuted by the example of Israel and Palestine. Okay. Uh, now, I, I'm, I'm going to interpret this as neutrally as possible without saying sure. who, who's sort of in the moral right in this question. Just yeah. looking at it in terms of, like, does this play out the same way that uh, Machiavelli describes it? Um, and he says, no, if you look at, you know, uh, Jewish people came and settled in the Holy Land um, and the Palestinians, let's say, f- felt aggrieved. Again, I will not comment on who's right yeah, and wrong right, in that, right. but they felt as though, okay. you know, they'd been uh, disenf- disenfranchised and their land had been taken from them and was, you know, given as Israeli settlements. Uh, and the response was violent, right? They're, you know, that, that's just a fact, right? There's some kind of violence in response to that pretty severe violence. And uh, that has not stopped Palestinians from fighting back right, against these uh, Israeli settlements. Yeah. And, uh, and here's the exchange. I'll quote the exchange here. Machiavelli says, what? Did the Arab ghosts rise from the grave? Did the dead take revenge? And Socrates replies, no, but the living did. For they had a connection with the dead. Perhaps this mm-hmm. is a fact about human nature you failed to take into account when you wrote, quote, all the rest will remain uninjured and so ought to remain quiet, end quote. 
Machiavelli, what fact do you mean? Like, what fact about human nature did I miss? Socrates says, it has various names. Solidarity is one, community is another, and loyalty is a third. Uh, and again, as we go, go back to our dialogue on um, international realism, yeah. uh, that's a critique of that too, right? There was a, a lot of them were saying after uh, the, the Berlin Wall fell, oh, Europe's just going to collapse, right, into inter, international strife, right? They're all yeah. going to be fighting with each other. That's not happened. They've been a member of the European Union, many of them, and so far war has been prevented. There, there seems to be some kind of fraternity or solidarity amongst them that's not enforced by arms. That's a little bit more organic than that. Uh, I think it's similar to what you're saying, too. Like, uh, humans are, well, they're persons, right? They're other-directed. They're not just individuals. They're not just a mass collective. They're, but they're personal. They're Trinitarian in some yeah. sense, right? We're not just objects, mm-hmm. right? We're not just a chemical that's going to react a certain way. Uh, as um, as Machiavelli here in, in, in Kreeft is suggesting, right? You're right, yeah, exactly, so, yes. Yeah. Where you can just kind of perform this thing, you know, you'll only kill a certain number of the population, but you'll be able to placate the rest of them, right? As, you know, as, as though they're chess pieces or something like that, right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, imagine, if you're, um, imagine if your pawns loved each other. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, would they put up with you just moving them around, right? Or would yeah. they? Or would they be? Oh, at least you didn't kill me. Like, no, you killed my friend. <laughs> I'm going to turn against you. We're going to revolt against you. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. again, this and I, this would also probably apply in the romantic realm. We we spoke before about Ayn Rand, right? Right. Yeah. Well, being self interested in all aspects of life. But did that work out for her? Well, she cheated on her husband because you know self interest and love. But then ended up getting emotionally involved with somebody who broke her heart, you know, and right. excommunicated her from the movement. Yeah. Uh, Machiavelli may have been similar, right? Machiavelli talks as though, you know, fortune is a woman and she needs a strong young man to come and conquer her. And in his own life, he was, a, you, know, pro, you know, was not loyal to his wife and had lots of affairs. But uh, so far from being in charge of that, I found this quote. This is from a letter he wrote because um, <laughs> he was giving advice to a friend about love. Okay. And he says, uh, my own precedent uh, causes you dismay remembering what love's arrows have done to me. I am obliged to tell you how I handled myself with him. Now, he's talking about Cupid, right? About love. He says, how have I handled myself with him? As a matter of fact, I have let him do as he pleases, and I have followed him through hill and dale, wood and plains. I have discovered that he has granted me more charms than if I had tormented him. So I take off my saddle packs, remove the bridle, close my eyes, and say, go ahead, love. Be my guide and my leader. If things turn out well, may the praise be yours. If they turn out badly, may the blame be yours. For I am your slave. Right. Very, first of all, very Italian. Right, <laughs> right. Yes. Extremely yeah. Renaissance romantic. Yeah. But when it comes to love, I, I think one of his lovers, one of the women actually told him, if you had known yourself, you never would have gotten married. That seems yeah. horribly un-Machiavellian. Right? <laughs> to the, just, just like Ayn Rand, right? You know, She wants oh, to right. sort of right, be detached from her marriage so she can be self-interested and sleep with who she deems worthy of herself, yeah. but then falls in love and gets her heart broken and yeah. is irate about it for the rest of her life. It seems similar to Machiavelli. He's not wrestling fortune to the ground here. He's literally letting, you know, he's Becoming letting love blindfold him and lead yeah. him around, right? He says, yeah. I am your slave, right? Yeah. Well, so the Mandrake is just a fiction. It's almost like a fantasy. Like, he wishes he could be this guy, right? Yeah. Uh, in, in practice, this just doesn't work. In practice, love demands a kind of self-gift because you're enslaved by love anyways, right? Love yeah. will enslave you. 
So the best thing to do, actually, the most self-interested thing to do is commit yourself in love to one person who commits themselves to you, right? And give right. yourself in this kind of, yeah. uh, in this sacrament of matrimony. Sure, right? yeah. Uh, similar to Ayn Rand, it actually would have been more in her self-interest, right, to have been a loyal wife, right? And, yeah. to, and to have that self-gift, you right. know? And I think this comes back to the paradox of freedom, mm-hmm. right? So if we think, we talked uh, last time about... Uh, in Machiavelli's view, who's the freest? Well, it's the tyrant, right? Right, yeah. Uh, because who can't love, right? right? Who can't really love because of exactly what Machiavelli's described here. But if we understand freedom as the fruit of bondage, right? Mm-hmm. In the sense, mm-hmm. um, a spouse bonded to another, right, mm-hmm. uh, to each other. Um, so that gives ground for freedom, right? Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. in that self denial that. Um, we are, we appropriate our our true freedom, uh, right? Yeah. And, and so this is, and that is what ultimately is authenticated uh, in in when we pray to our Father, right? Uh, Thy will be done. Yeah. Uh, and so this is the fullness of what it means to be human. Yeah. Uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to being the serf of Cupid, <laughs> right? Right. right yeah. Which is. Uh, you're right. That doesn't seem like words that um, a prince would utter uh, being served <laughs> to anyone, uh, let alone uh, his passage on penitence there. Uh, it sounds very much at odds with, uh, with his other extra. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. Different context, of course. Of course. But, sure, but, yeah, but yeah, that, yeah. that, again, goes back to the um, inconsistency or perhaps even just um, uh, the lack of vision of, of, of what it means to be human. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's interesting as you say that. I was just thinking, like, you know, you talk about hell, you know, we sort of rightly understood it's kind of loss of identity. I, you know, here I am, here we are kind of speculating about who was the true Machiavelli. You know, I wonder if he really knew because the exhortation of penitence, you know, it's, maybe that's written to, to curry favor with Catholics. But then the prince is written to curry favor with the Medici, right? Like, yes. and then there's questions of, well, was he being completely honest with Medici, you know, because yes. he, he is an enemy of his and was he planning on one day betraying Medici? So is he giving, is he fully giving his hand away to him? So, I mean, there's a question of, you know, if, you, if you're always running a game with whoever you're with, at a certain yeah. point, it's like, who is the real you anymore, right? right? Like, yeah. and I really wonder if that was, again, this would go to my point, maybe that's why he had the last rights on his deathbed, because maybe he was realizing, like, who is the real Machiavelli at this point? Is it the discourses on Livy guy who seems like this noble Democrat, right? Yeah. Is it this cunning chess player in The Prince? Yeah. Like, is it this penitent Catholic? You know, who who yeah. am I at this point? Like, if you're always doing that, you lose you lose your soul. You gain the world, but lose your soul, it seems, you know, right. after a certain yeah. point, you know. Uh, so then that brings me to my final question, which opened, was going to open up to our next podcast, which is, okay. is Machiavelli right that you need to sin to be a leader? Or can you be a good Christian and a leader? Okay. Right. Uh, I'll just mention, you know, I'll just say a couple of things because I want to talk about it more in our next episode, which will be about Macbeth. Which, like oh, yes. many of Shakespeare's plays, I think is actually because again he knew about Machiavelli. He talks, yeah. he mentions him by name. Yeah. I think you know the the Henriad is is dealing with this question in some ways, right? Like, can, and I think Macbeth is definitely dealing with this question of can you actually be a consistent Christian and an effective ruler? Uh, now, yeah. maybe you could you, know, you could say like Thomas More, sure, you can be a Christian politician if you're willing to be beheaded, yes. uh, which you should be. Yeah. <laughs> you should be yeah. willing to be martyred, yeah. uh, but of course, you know Thomas Thomas Aquinas was friends with uh, Saint Louis, right? With a good yes. king. We've we've got plenty of canonized uh, rulers, uh, not so yeah. many elected politicians, but we've got a couple. Yeah. We've got a couple, you sure. know, as well. So uh, is it is is it possible to? And uh, I think Shakespeare dramatically suggests that yes, you can be. It's hard, but it's possible. Okay. Uh, but what? But uh, so that, that, that's kind of my piece for now. But what do you, what's your 
What are your thoughts on that to kind of conclude the episode? Like, uh, is Machiavelli right that you need to be, uh, I guess, corrupt or evil to be an effective politician? Not just effective, but like to do what you need to do as a politician. And, to be, a vir- and, to yeah. be virtuous to your people, do you need to sometimes Abs- lie to them? Absolutely not. So, okay. so in, in even thinking of in my own competencies as a, as a father, right, which is a mm. figure over a, a small society. Uh, but, uh, yeah, do you, do you need to be vicious, right, to be effective? Well, no. Uh, again, it's coming back to who we are as people, right? Are, mm. are we automatons that need to be manipulated? Uh, if through whatever means possible, or are we actually, do we have this dignity and worth that we can grow and commune through love, right? So, so uh, you know, faith working through charity. Like this this is um, the, the, the gap, I would say, between this vision of who are we uh, fundamentally, um, right? And, and so this, um, I would mm-hmm. suggest, no. Uh, his vision is not just harmful, it's wrong. Yeah. It's it's skewed. That's it's missing. Key. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's missing who we are. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I think we know this deep down. So. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Yeah. We're at exactly one hour mark, yeah. so, so I think we'll we'll call it here. And uh, so, uh, Doctor McClarney, would you please uh, lead us in a closing prayer? Yes. Let us pray. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.